episode 95 of UConn 360. That's the only podcast known to science that covers the University of Connecticut from each and every conceivable angle. I am your facilitator of sorts. My name is Tom Breen, coming to you from the beautiful Lakeside Building in Storrs, Connecticut. And joining me as always is my colleague, Julie Bartuka. Julie, how are you? I'm good. It's a beautiful day. Pretty it is excited. a beautiful spring day. We have a really fun guest for folks this week who's going to be talking about some performances on campus that are happening today, as you hear this, Wednesday the 20th, and also tomorrow. But before we meet him, we just want to get through a couple of quick headlines because there's some exciting news coming up. Julie, what's happening? Well, we've known for years that UConn is a good value, but we've got some uh, more stats to prove that. UConn's time to graduation for undergraduate students is 4.1 years on average, and that makes us tied with five other of our peer universities for the fastest time to degree rate in a ranking of 58 peer public research institutions. So that saves you some money. You don't have to be here for extra semesters. You can begin earning your, your salary or go to your advanced degree program a little bit more quickly. And that's thanks to you know a lot of the support that we have here at UConn to help students stay on track to their degree. So that was some good news. Absolutely. And on the good news side of things, I want to congratulate Irene Soterio. She's a junior and she is a Recently been named a Truman Scholar. She is just the 10th UConn student to be named to the prestigious honor. She's a native of Middletown and she's an honors double major in statistics and cognitive science. She's part of a select group of 58 new Truman Scholars from around the country. And she was chosen from more than 700 candidates nominated by nearly 300 different schools. She plans on attending law school after graduating and is interested in a career in foreign policy. And interesting trivia note, one of the members of her interview committee who selected her for the award was former presidential candidate Michael Dukakis. Wow. Yeah. Very so, impressive. Congratulations. Congratulations to Irene. I really like her combination of degrees and interests, cognitive science and stats, and wants to be in politics. That's fascinating. It's it, just one more reminder that I completely wasted my undergraduate time. <laughs> Same. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, that's fantastic news. All right. Well, now we have a very fun guest. I'm very excited about this. The puppetry program at UConn is one of the things that's very distinctive about UConn. It's one of the things that we're known for. It's one of the things that sets us apart from just about every other university. And so we are very fortunate to have with us someone who is practically synonymous with UConn puppetry. He's a professor in the Department of Puppetry. He's also the director of the Ballard Institute and Museum of Puppetry, which is in uh, Store Center. It's right next to the UConn bookstore. I am a frequent visitor. And if you haven't been there yet, you should go down there and check it out. There's always uh, new and, and fun exhibits. Joining us today to talk about puppetry and to talk about some upcoming performances is John Bell. John, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Tom. And thank you, Julie. It's a big pleasure to, to be with you to talk about puppets and Yukon. Yes, yes. And, and before we talk about the upcoming performances, I'm, I'm kind of curious. I'd, I'd like to know how you got interested in this art form and sort of how your journey brought you to UConn. Yeah, super interesting. As I look back on it, I was interested in theater in high school and in college, and I was acting, you know, in plays and stuff in Hamlet and Ibsen plays and things. And then I sort of realized I wasn't a great actor, something about trying to inhabit another character. And I was in college in Vermont and the Bread and Puppet Theater, who's who's uh, in residence this week at UConn, they were performing shows. At that time, it was the 70s. The shows were about the Vietnam War, which as students, we were all thinking about because we might get drafted and then the war was going on. And it was really interesting because the puppeteers 
they perform like I was doing with acting, but then they're performing with masks and puppets and objects. And then also puppeteers are like making sets and setting up the stages and playing music and doing choreography, dancing, speaking, making things out of clay and paper mache, loading the bus, unloading, setting up, striking. And that overall approach of doing everything really appealed to me. It sort of takes the pressure off of having to be present on stage yourself, which actors do in an amazing way. And with puppets, we'd get involved with this interesting thing of placing the focus on these objects and letting them tell the story. I find that dynamism super interesting. And then as I learned later, it's studying theater history. It's like a global tradition all over the world. Puppetry is something that unites all cultures pretty much. You know, everybody, every culture at some time or another has invented some way of telling stories with these objects, masks, puppets, etc. So I got interested in, and I joined the Bread and Puppet Theater and was a member of the company for 10 years. And then as a result of my travels in Europe and Latin America and North Africa, I thought, what's the history of this? So I studied theater history and then I thought, oh, maybe I'll be a theater professor. And that's brought me to UConn. <laughs> so where I've, you know, I've had this great opportunity to combine my interests in puppetry with theater history and the amazing puppet arts program and the amazing Ballad Institute. So I'm really, really lucky. When you just were talking about that, you actually almost hit on everything I wrote in one of my questions. So when we think of puppets, a lot of times us, us people who are not in the puppet world, a lot of times you think it's it's kind of for kids, right? But you were talking about your kind of first exposure was a right. show about the Vietnam War. And right. as the Ballard proves, you know, there are so many different puppets from different cultures, from all different time frames, used for so many reasons. Why do you think puppetry is such an effective tool for so many kinds of storytelling? Well, that's, I don't know if I have an answer, but it's <laughs> really interesting and it's really essential you know, and the evidence is that, you know, it, it is an effective means. I think part of it has to do with how we define puppets, because as you suggested, I think beginning in the late 19th century in the United States, they developed this idea of the lives of children and the idea that puppets were, you know, the best way to reach children. And the older tradition that puppets are important parts of a society and they talk about religion and politics and the life of the community you know that's you see everywhere that kind of diminished and we got to this point of thinking that puppets were for kids although we know they're not why they connect so well I think it's a displacement because both the audience and the performers are focused on this object that you're giving life to so you know, you pick up a piece of wood that's sculpted or stone or leather or now more recently plastic or metal and you move it around and you give it a voice or you say, you know, here's, you know, here's a character or here's God or here's the king or here's, you know, a housewife or here's the guy down the street and and people will say, okay, that's interesting, you know, that. Okay, that's who it is. And we all get fascinated 
by, by that operation of giving life to an, an object that's dead. In some cases, in the older forms, it was a living entity, a part of a tree or leather from an animal. And, and the audience doesn't say, no, no, wait a minute, that's not really the king, that's a piece of wood, you know, or, <laughs> or that's a hand puppet, or, you know, that's, that's a piece of cloth that looks like Kermit the Frog. You don't do that, you say, oh, okay, now what? And then the puppeteer is able to say, well, this is what happens. And we all get engaged. So there's something kind of magical or like Freud, Sigmund Freud says uncanny, you know, bringing life to dead objects. Like that's really metaphysical, but it's also very effective. We puppeteers yeah. think about these kind of things a good bit. It's really interesting. One of the yeah. things that going to the, the Ballard Institute has, has kind of taught me is that the category of puppet is much broader than I had thought before. I mean... Before I, I knew anything about it, I, I thought of puppets as being, you know, marionettes and the sort of traditional, but it's everything from the character balloons of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade right. to uh, sports mascots and, and action figures and things. Could you talk about some of the breadth of it and, and things that the principles of puppetry apply to a lot of things that people might not really think of as puppets? Exactly. In some cases, <clears throat> the definition of puppets you know, has been along kind of European lines. So there's hand puppets and marionettes which are operated from above by strings and rod puppets and then shadow puppets and a kind of strict adherence to those definitions leaves out a lot of times where sculpture and objects and images are used in performance in the ways I was trying to relate earlier. So, you know, you have African rod puppets and African sculpture and performance and maybe that's more like masks or it's dance or Asian forms of performance in China, India, Indonesia, and Japan, or Native American performance that like in the Northeast with Iroquois false face masks or in the Northwest coast, Kwakutl culture or Zuni and Pueblo culture, full, full, full of these types of ritual performances that are essential to the way a community runs. But if puppets are only hand puppets or marionettes in a European sense, then none of that is on the board. And then you get into these weird things where you say, well, you know, th there's a famous puppeteer, Tony Sarg, and his biographer said, well, it's Tony Sarg brought puppets to America. And it's like, well, no, Native Americans and people from all over were using these forms. So a broader definition in can include, as you pointed out, mascots, you know, which like Jonathan the Husky is so important to Yukon culture, robotics, these mechanical machines and machines performing as representatives of humans have been around for years, ritual objects, you know, in religious performances, like in Jewish uh, religion, the Torah scrolls are considered to be like a, a person, you treat them like a human being. In Catholic mass, you take a piece of bread and wine and that becomes the body and blood of Christ. Like these are very powerful objects that are important to the communities that use them. And so I think this wider sense of puppets and what we call performing objects is super interesting, especially now with like, we think about robots, you know, and machines and are they taking over or who are they and what do they want? The, the roots of that are, are, are in puppetry, just as the roots of like screen performance, you know, computer screens and television and film really go back to shadow theater, which is also a screen performance.
Would you consider like Disney animatronics puppets? Oh yeah, absolutely. Like huh. this, Disney World is a, that's a huge place for puppets and performing objects. And a lot of puppeteers work there. I mean, there are puppet shows, straightforward rod puppet shows. Like there's one for uh, Harry Potter series, I think. But, you know, there's the Star Wars set where they're wearing masks or you have, you know, these robot characters or Jabba the Hutt. Those are all, those are performed by puppeteers. And the animatronics are, as I was saying, you know, a kind of mechanical version of puppetry, the Hall of Presidents or yeah. Pirates of the Caribbean. You know, it's all about making these figures that that move and represent stories and you know you don't have the puppeteer doesn't have their hand in the puppet or on the puppet but instead they've constructed a machine and maybe they're controlling it through a an algorithm or you know some other indirect means of of manipulation but disneyland is or disney world are both are exciting because it's full 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 of these object performances that are very effective and satisfying that's so cool i never thought of that as part of puppetry that's really really interesting yeah a lot of our graduates end up working with animatronics for amusement parks or like there's been a lot of puppets on saturday night live in the past few weeks made by uh, a studio called monkey boys in philadelphia and a number of our graduates are actually are working there right now making wow. those puppets so among other places there's a lot yeah that's great you mentioned uh, Freud's essay on the uncanny yeah. and there's there's kind of a trope in popular culture of like the the sinister or the evil puppet you know like the the, the ventriloquist dummy that comes alive and sort yeah. of you know where do you think that comes from where do you think there's this sort of like kind of a a, a sense of eeriness that some people feel about yeah. puppets well I think it became eerie around the time Freud and this other psychologist Ernst Jentsch who wrote about the uncanny started writing about it. And to my mind, it has to do with modernity's efforts to separate nature and culture, in which humans start building canals and industrial machines and manufacture and capitalism expands around the world. And at that point, the natural world becomes alienated. And puppetry and ritual performance that I was trying to talk about, that becomes a little suspect, like, oh, what are these wacky people in these Native Americans doing and these people in Africa and Asia, they connect religion with these object performances, but we're, we believe in science and rationality and the scientific process. And at that point, play with puppets becomes a little bit weird. And I think, as you point out with Freud in this question of the uncanny, there's something sort of suspicious or malevolent. And, and we see that with like, you know, what is it, Chucky, you know, the Chucky movies where like the doll comes alive and it's got a, got a there's a Saturday Night Live sketch on that about that recently. Or robots, you know, oh, the robots are going to take over, you know. And so because these are not human things, there can be a sense of fear. But I think the older sense of puppets and objects and masks is much more, you know, amenable. You know, they're, they're just part of the life of the community. They could be bad. They could be devils, you know, but they also can be angels and thinking of medieval theater in Europe. You know. So I think it's a recent development that we think, uh oh, there's something weird about that. Puppet. <laughs>
<laughs> a little unsettling. It's too, it's too real. I was wondering if you have a favorite type of puppet. And since you're the head of the Ballard Institute and you have so many puppets in the collection and exhibits that have come through, if you have a specific favorite puppet that you have encountered. I, I don't know. It's, I mean, it's all super, super interesting, you know, to me like marionettes are really difficult. Like I, I can't do the marionette movement well. I think I like rod puppets and hand puppets. Hand puppets are really old. It's Punch and Judy. And with one person you can do two puppets and then you can do choreography and make them dance, which is super traditional. And they've traditionally been tricksters, you know, characters who make fun of the powers that be, you know, or make fun of society's rules. That's the essence of Punch, which is sort of why Punch is a problematic figure right now. It's a street theater a performance. It's a popular performance traditionally. And it's where the ideas that a culture or society is thinking about get expressed. So I guess if I had to, I had to choose, it would be hand puppets. Talk about what's uh, happening on campus this week. This is uh, the Bread and Puppet Theater in residence for a couple of performances. What are they going to be doing? What are folks going to be seeing? Well, all week the theater is rehearsing this Greek tragedy by Aeschylus, the Persians. It was written in 472 BC after the Greek victory over the Persians. So they're working, uh, there's 16 puppeteers from the Bread and Puppet Company, including the director, Peter Schumann, working with an equal number of volunteers from Yukon and from the Mansfield Willimantic Stores community, rehearsing every day and then performing outdoors on the South Campus lawn Saturday and Sunday, April 23rd and 24th at 4 p.m. This, this tragedy with lots of giant puppets and masks and music by Johann Sebastian Bach, the St. Matthew Passion and other types of music, dance, use of big paintings as ob uh, performing objects. And of course, the sort the as an outdoor performance, they'll be performing on the grass. It's a pretty, you know, interesting environmental piece of theater. And in connection with that, the theater's performing, I guess we're broadcasting to uh, Wednesday, April 20th at, at lunchtime on Fairfield Way, the theater's gonna do an outdoor street show which is kind of a trademark of the Bread and Puppet Theater. Oh, let's do a show on the street. And that'll be a, most likely a Contastoria, which is a picture performance where you have big paintings that are narrated with poetry and text and music and choreography. So that's gonna happen, hopefully in a place where a lot of students might see it. And then Thursday, also at lunchtime, the 21st, in the Mobius Theater, designed by Jerry Rojo in the Dramatic Arts Department, there'll be a forum, one of our puppet forums, where the theater, Peter Schumann and, and his colleagues from the company will talk about the creation of this tragedy, this production of Aeschylus's tragedy, and what it means and how you create, especially during the time of COVID, where it's pretty challenging. So all of those activities, and we're really hoping people will come to the Saturday, Sunday performances. If there's rain, which hopefully there won't be, the weather report looks good, they'll perform in E.O. Smith High School Auditorium. It, it sounds fantastic. I'm definitely going to be there. I can't wait to see it. And, and, and how about, how are things at the, the Ballard Institute right now? I know the pandemic was challenging for a lot of museums because people couldn't 
actually go there for a while. And I know it's been uh, reopened to, I think, appointment only right now. Is that the case? Well, actually, in the past few weeks, you know, we've we've changed because the the changed COVID protocols of the university and the School of Fine Arts have allowed us to open up to anybody who walks through the door. So that's been really great for us. People are people are walking through the door and coming to see our current exhibit, Echo in Puerto Rico, Four Generations of Puerto Rican Puppetry, and our, our, our permanent exhibit, The World of Puppetry. And our, our colleague Matt Sorensen has been doing puppet workshops in our in our workshop area. We've been doing museum tours for staff and students and groups from around the area. So that's really, really nice. It's wonderful to see people in the museum. We were also doing an interesting project. This is an interesting moment right now for Yukon puppetry because there's five different projects that really span the whole range of puppetry in the US right now. One is a television project called Feel Your Best Self that my colleague Emily Wicks has organized with Sandy Chafulias from the NEAG School of Education. And they were making a series of 12 short videos in Hamden, Connecticut about you know, health and well-being for kids, you know, especially during COVID times that they've been shooting and they'll distribute nationwide starting in July. Super interesting, kind of coming from the television Henson side of things. Also, this weekend, the Connecticut Repertory Theater is opening Little Shop of Horrors, which opens Thursday, April 21st and runs for two weeks. You know, one of the classic pieces of a Broadway musical with puppets with these amazing Audrey II, you know, man-eating plants, beautiful puppets made by the Puppet Arts Program. And we've also had uh, a colleague in the Puppet Arts Program, Matthew Cohen, did Purim Spiel a couple of weeks ago at the West Hartford Jewish Community Center called Wayang Esther, which brought in the art of Javanese shadow theater, of which Matthew is a, a master, and the holiday and story of Purim together. And these are all different interesting quadrants, you know, the discovery of Asian puppet theater, Broadway performance, television performance that kind of goes back to Jim Henson's work, and then this alternative puppet theater for adults with bread and puppets. So it's a very rich moment in puppetry at UConn this spring. It really shows off the versatility uh, of, of puppetry. Yeah. You know, it can do a lot of different things. I guess that's why I like it, because there's so many different things and they're all interesting and say, oh, that's interesting. They're making this, they're doing that. The Puerto Rican show, Echo in Puerto Rico, is like that because there's many different forms of puppetry and that shows up through June 11th. And it's just fascinating to see how the culture on this you know, relatively small island takes in these influences from Taino culture and Afro-Caribbean culture and Spanish culture and United States culture and puts together in a ver wide variety of different forms, television, live theater, processions, other types of puppet shows. It's, I, I just find it super inspiring. I may take a walk to the Ballard today, I think. <laughs> Wait, we, we will be happy to see you. It's beautiful out. I'm doing it. Well, fantastic. Folks, if you're listening, uh, you're on campus today, April 20th, Fairfield Way at noon, tomorrow, the 21st, Mobius Theater, and this weekend, both Saturday and Sunday on the lawn. Come down. I'll be there, but don't let that stop you. It's going to be a great time. <laughs> a bread and Puppet Theater, tr truly world-renowned. They're a fantastic uh, performance. And John, thank you so much uh, for joining us. This has been great. 
Thank you. Well, it was so nice to meet you. Thanks, Julie, and thanks, Tom. I really appreciated uh, talking with you. All right, now it's it's time for Tom's history, whatever Tom's history thing moment. Tom's history moment. Thank you. We are coming up on on commencement. This will be our first quote unquote normal commencement since uh, the pandemic started. What is this book you have in front of you? It's like a. This is Connecticut Agricultural College: A History by Walter oh, Stamets. Oh, that's nice. It just looks very um, like old and important. It, well, it is. It is both old and important. It's from the 1930s. It was published to coincide with uh, the institution's 50th anniversary. So even before it was UConn, even before, in fact, it was a university, it was still uh, the CAC, and we were the Aggies. Do you, did you find it at a flea market, or is this a... Uh... I found it at a used bookstore years ago. Cool. Yeah, I, I try to, every, anytime I come across like a UConn-related book, I, I buy it. Um, yeah. So I have a lot of, I have a lot of basketball-related books, but... Um, Every once in a while, I find one of these, and it, it's it's pretty amazing. There's a lot of good stuff in here. And with commencement coming up, we have 17 ceremonies. We're going to be conferring more than 8,000 degrees on everyone from people getting their bachelor's degrees to people getting doctorates and master's degrees. And we're going to be minting new doctors and dentists and lawyers. And We also have, we have an associate degree as well. An associate degree, a bachelor's of general studies. I mean, you name it. We're going to be giving out degrees. It's going to last basically an entire weekend. And, and, it's a, going to be, and a Monday, I believe. And a Monday. And it's a huge event. And the people are preparing their speeches. This is the time of year when everyone kind of polishes their, you know, joke about making the speech short and that kind of thing. And people complain about the length of graduation ceremonies. So I wanted to talk about the first commencement ceremony, UConn history which was in June 19th, 1883. So this was a two-year degree. Back, back then, the, the school was a, a two-year program. And actually, some of the people who got their certificate later went on to high school. It's mm -hmm. a weird weird time. But the commencement this time around is being split between, which is normal for us now, Gamble Pavilion, Jorgensen Auditorium, and a few other locations that the law school has their own. Um, for this commencement, it was... <laughs> It was held in a grove of trees. Yeah, we've but talked about this before. We've talked about it. The, the Oak Grove, which was across the Gurleyville Road, back of Holcomb Hall. It was a favorite place for open air meetings. I'm kind of sad that this doesn't exist anymore. I'm kind of sad too that we don't It'd do open cool. air meetings. Like druids. But we probably, I mean, we probably have like oak groves. So we just don't think of it as that. It's true. And I, I, we have talked about this too. Like a lot of trees were destroyed in the hurricane of 1938. Like yeah. hundred, hundreds of trees. But so the, the commencement, we did have a big name speaker. Henry Ward Beecher was the brother of Harriet Beecher Stowe. Wow. Uh, and he was a very famous evangelist from the 19th century. Later disgraced because he had an extramarital affair. I oh. Shocking stuff. Jeez, that would be nothing now. That's a Tuesday for a, yeah, for a right. like major public figure these days. Almost laudable considering. Um <laughs> And also Governor Thomas Waller was present. So this was not, a I mean, like it was a fairly big deal, but there were six graduates. And <laughs> wow, her, for to have those big names for six graduates is yeah, pretty right. impressive. The governor and Henry Ward Beecher. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And as was the custom at the time, each graduate would deliver a speech. Wow. So in addition well, to Henry, Henry Ward Beecher. There are six speeches. There's six of them. At graduation anyway, so. Henry Ward Beecher spoke for about 90 minutes. Holy. And the governor spoke. And then there were six speeches from the graduates. These, <laughs> I, I don't know what Henry Ward Beecher or Governor Waller spoke about, but I do know what each graduate spoke about. Are you ready? Jerry Fan of Plymouth, Connecticut. His speech was titled, The Laws of Dew, Frost, and Storms. Andrew Hyde of South Glastonbury. The Feet of the Horse and Ox and Their Diseases. <laughs> Fred Levins of Warrigan, 
His, ta- his talk was just titled Irrigation and Drainage. I'm sorry, where is that? Waregan. Yeah. That is, it's like one of those, it's not, I'm going to look it up right Google now. Are you going to Google it? I'm going to Google it right now. And, and like, I can tell that our, our Waregan-based fans are going to be are furious. screaming at their, but I know a lot of these There's, like weird little parts of towns in Connecticut. I've never heard of that one. It's in Plainfield. Plainfield. Well, Plainfield. no wonder, because Plainfield's already oh. a pretty small place. So these are like, it's kind of like they're giving their dissertation. Kind of, almost. yeah. Or, or yeah, senior thesis maybe or something yeah. like that. But they have to deliver it as a, as a speech. I mean, uh, it was re- an agricultural school. It was, it was. And also rhetoric was required. So they had to be able to like speak publicly. Mm-hmm. So if Keep you can going. speak publicly about irrigation and drainage, you know, you're doing pretty well. Samuel Q. Porter Jr. of Unionville delivered his graduation speech on conditions of health in our homes, which actually I think would be kind of interesting to find yeah. out what in 1883 people were saying about that. Oh my um, gosh, that would be fascinating. And Unionville is part of Farmington, for those who don't know. All right. And Frank Hubbard of Glastonbury, two Glastonbury natives in this uh, graduating class. <laughs> Insects injurious to the apple. <laughs> That's important in Connecticut. It apples, is important. Apples it are is. a big deal here. Yep, yep. And uh, finally, Clifford S. Barnes of Collinsville. That's part of Canton. Yes. See, I'm just proving to you that I do know my villages. Okay. Well, no, I, 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 I knew Collinsville was somewhere out there, but I, I didn't know it was Canton. The physiology and chemistry of cattle feeding. So All right. Big topic in Connecticut in the 19th century. I um, wonder, I really want to know how long those were, number one. And number two, what Henry Ward Beecher spoke about for 90 minutes. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm positive it was far more religious than we would have yeah. at a commencement speaker in a public university in in 2022 this was back when chapel like attendance at, at church at the congregational mm-hmm. church was required of our students so mm-hmm. different different times the supreme court had not yet fully applied the bill of rights in the states you can get away with anything back then but yeah also canton it's just side note has its own headless horseman folklore just throwing that out there oh I'll have to ask Krista about that. Our magazine designer, Krista Tubak, no, Krista Young now, is from Canton. I'll have to find out if she knows about that. Headless Horseman of Canton. He's a Revolutionary War soldier, I think. That's cool. Yeah, so the point of your story is that if you are sitting at commencement this year and it's long, consider yourself lucky. Yeah, you're not going to hear a 90-minute sermon, and and you're not going to hear somebody read a paper about insects injurious to the apple. Thank Uh, God. Yeah, any, any commencement ceremony you go to, just imagine yourself, what if each of these people was reading a paper? Mm-hmm. On, you know? on horse hooves. Yeah, or anything, frankly. You know, you go to the, like, one of the, CLAS, the CLA ceremony, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of graduates, if not thousands, at each ceremony. They have three. Yeah, three now. They used to have two. It's big. It's big. Big time. So you won't, you won't have to hear anyone read their paper. So basically, the point of this is stop complaining. <laughs> stop whining and just enjoy commencement. It's a big deal. And it, this one's going to be special too, because again, it's our first sort of normal one since the pandemic. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a fun weekend. Exciting times. Julie, is there anything you would like the people, our, our devoted listeners to know? Is there anything we should be talking about? Today.ucon.edu. Always. There, there's stuff about puppets on there. We did a story on the, the HO in Puerto Rico puppet show and on the um, puppets of the Jewish Community Center. So cool. a lot of puppet coverage. You can follow us on Twitter at Yukon Podcast. And, we're not uh, we're not very active. We're not active. You can follow me on Twitter at TJ Breen. You are active on Twitter. Uh, you can follow me on LinkedIn too. I don't know why you would do that, but I do I am active on LinkedIn. Is your boss now? 
Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I have to now that I'm a boss. I have Bosses to have to be active on LinkedIn. Yeah. No, I'm I'm active on Instagram and Facebook, but I don't want random followers there. Our, our, lis- our listeners aren't random followers. I just post pictures of my child. So they're, they're, they're like our down. they're like our extended family. Okay. Well, thanks for listening, extended family, and we'll be back in two weeks.